This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Well, today, the year in review, 2019. And the subjects, the Australian election miracle, the climate debate, China and America and the world. So let's get started. To talk more about 2019 and to identify political trends in 2020, let's turn to our panel. Jenny Hewitt is National Affairs Columnist with the Financial Review in Melbourne. Hi there, Jenny. Hello. Judith Sloan is Contributing Economics Editor with The Australian. She joins us on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Hi there, Judith. Hi, Tom. And Stephen Loosley is here with me in Sydney. He's a Senior Visiting Fellow at the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Hi there, Steve. Good morning, Tom. Let's turn to Morrison's miracle victory. Jenny, how do you account for the May 18 election upset? Well, once we get past the fact that the uh, the polls got it so seriously wrong, which meant um, I think that everybody got it so seriously wrong, I think you have to look at Morrison's actually spectacular strategy uh, of focusing absolutely on himself uh, and on his ability to be very different to Malcolm Turnbull uh, and to offer very different uh, kind of practical approach to what he saw as, you know, what his government could offer and to scare people about the impact of Labor's very um, aggressive taxation policy. Okay, but the coalition was disunited. I mean, they had three prime ministers in three years. Uh, Judith, the the media mantra uh, consistently for the last three years had been that Australians were moving in a progressive direction. We had the same-sex marriage result, uh, the campaigns against Australia Day, all of that. Uh, So, Judith, what does the result tell us about uh, the political landscape in the country? Well, I think it tells us two things. The first of all is that maybe a change of leadership is not as damaging as, as has always been the assumption. So, I mean, let's face it, it, it was, what, September? Uh, the election was in May. And, and, and indeed, it was a pretty messy transaction, let's face it. But it's not clearly the kiss of death. But the way I would interpret the second point is this, that we had a kind of mushy right uh, government led by Morrison, but we had a slightly less mushy centre-left alternative under Labor. They just pushed a little too far to the left, particularly with some of their taxation proposals. I think they could have won, even in the context of an unpopular leader as Bill Shorten, but they just went too far. Yeah, but if you look at Labor, uh, Stephen Loosely, your old party, uh, you know, under Bill Shorten, you know, it's fair to say Bill Shorten was no Jeremy Corbyn in Britain or a Bernie Sanders uh, in the United States, and yet he still got smashed, particularly Queen why? Labor continued to campaign as if the government was fundamentally disunited as it had been under uh, Abbott and Turnbull. The electorate breathed a sigh of relief when Scott Morrison stepped up. Mr Suburban uh, Dad, the coalition resolved in large measure to put the disharmony behind them. This meant when the, the coalition started to have a look of cohesion, that there was a great deal more scrutiny as the election campaign came on, on some of the uh, commitments that Labor was making. I think federal Labor probably was a bit too ambitious in the the tax policy arena. I think just about everything Chris Bowen was proposing will be embraced by one government or another over the uh, ensuing decade or more of Australian politics. But to have that out there and be seen to be taking things from the electorate, as Kim Beasley Sr. once observed, 
that is just uh, electoral what poison. A, what about Queensland, though, Stephen? I mean, state Labor dominates the Sunshine State, but was the result up there another lesson that the politics of climate change isn't as simple as Western cultural elites claim? Well, no question about that. But, I mean, we, we can thank the Greens in large measure for a portion of that reversal. The Adani caravan is the most nonsensical political event in the last uh, a decade. The elites of Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra and Hobart turning up in central and, uh, and northern Queensland, telling people who are wanting jobs, I'm sorry, you can't have these jobs because we've ruled against you. That was just profoundly insulting. And the Greens make it, let, let's be candid on this, the Greens make it much harder for Labor to form government. And the, and the trap into which Labor fell, not only in central and northern Queensland, but in uh, Melbourne and Adelaide to an extent, is that the focus is on combating the Greens in inner urban seats rather than combating the coalition in the great swathe of uh, seats okay. in suburbia and the regions. I get all that, but it's not just the Greens. In, in a column for the Financial Review this week, Jenny, uh, you wrote how um, businesses are bracing for a climate lawfare. This is in response to the former High Court judge and Royal Commissioner Kenneth Haney's warned directors they have a legal duty to act on climate change. How do we balance that with, say, democratic election results in Queensland? Well, that's right. Um, although, and, and mind you, it's not wasn't just Queensland. Obviously, that was the most uh, spectacular example of Labor's uh, failure to attract um, a certain demographic vote. But I mean, even in Victoria, where you had um, inner city seats, uh, Liberal held seats, staying Liberal held, but with big swings against them, it was in those outer suburban seats uh, that Labor really failed to make a connection. And I do think uh, the coalition's focus on jobs, jobs and jobs was very important there as well. Again, not picked up by the polls particularly. But I think climate change action, the fact is no matter what government policy we have in Australia, there is a kind of a global push uh, which is very much affecting business uh, about how they are seen to respond to uh, climate change risks. And it's, I think, quite powerful. And that's obviously also, I think, why one of the reasons it seems as though business uh, executives are often sounding much more cognizant of the need to take, you know, much um, stronger action on climate change than the Morrison government does. Uh, you have companies like BHP yeah. um, announcing that they were they will be trying to decrease the emissions of, of their customers, uh, which, of course, didn't go over very well uh, in Canberra at all. But they have to respond to this increasing uh, institutional pressure. So Jenny mentions this uh, the, the spreading global push for businesses to respond more proactively to climate change. Um, Judith, uh, how do you respond to that? I mean, let me run a, an editorial from the Wall Street Journal following Australia's election result. It says, quote, faced with lost jobs, higher taxes and a higher cost of living, voters in democracies time and again have rejected climate change policies that wouldn't in the end matter all that much to the climate. Well, I think the sort of big picture here is democracy or the will of the people versus the influence of the elites. And, you know, they clearly don't trust the people, the proletariat. They obviously are not a trustworthy group in terms of climate action response. And cool. so they're prepared to use other ways. But what about the climate lawfare that Jenny's talking about? I think that is a reality. And uh, we have many uh, well-funded groups around the globe. It's not just a particularly Australian phenomenon that will use the processes of the courts to try and get their way in a way that they can't secure through the ballot box. But, I mean, I think the irony here is that 
the elephant in the room really is China uh, and the baby elephant is India. So in terms of uh, the increases in emissions, for example, they went up by 4% last year, 50% were uh, from China and 25% from India. But interestingly enough, these virtue signalling woke users of uh, the lawfare, for example, they never mention China. China seems to be out of bounds in terms of really pushing for action. And if you look at some of the comments that Xi Jinping has been talking about, it really is mushy stuff, which doesn't equate with the reality of the industrial development Okay, now back to Labor. Uh, Stephen, since 1993, Labor's primary vote has on average declined by about 1.5% at every election. Um, what does Labor need to do in the Albanese era to reverse those trends? Uh, decide uh, whom we uh, represent, be very definite about that. Uh, in other words, focus upon the people to begin who are the traditional ALP constituency have been since the foundation of the party in 1891, it's working people and their families and build out uh, from that. The, the newly arrived in Indigenous communities and the like reach out to uh, business. In other words, just occupy the centre ground as Hawke and Keating did for 13 years and do it quite deliberately. And of course, what the Hawke and Keating governments did in large measure until 1996 was to push the coalition out to the right. And this is not a peculiar Australian phenomenon. If you look at what Tony Blair did in the UK, it's almost identical to what, what uh, Bill Clinton did in the United States. Occupy the centre ground and be seen to deliver for your constituency. Worry less about the uh, the Greens. Confront the uh, uh, the coalition and one nation uh, off on the uh, off on the right. And Anthony Albanese is off to a decent start in the sense that he has a much higher trust ratings uh, than his predecessor Bill Shorten. Jenny Canalbo, and remember, he represents an inner city progressive left wing electorate in Sydney. Uh, can he resonate in a place like Queensland? Uh, Bill Shorten certainly didn't resonate, so it's hard to imagine him um, any worse. Whether or not he can do a lot better will, I think, depend uh, largely on issues like the economy and how that is travelling uh, and also his ability to reframe Labor's positioning, uh, which he's obviously trying to do on, on areas like coal. And his other strength, um, I guess, is that he does have a, a fairly down-to-earth um, sounding personality, um, fairly kind of straightforward, you know, blokey in a way, even though he's from the left um, in New South Wales and inner city left. Uh, so I think that will probably help him. But there's obviously a very, very long way to go. This is Tom Switzer on RN and my guests are Stephen Loosley from the US Studies Centre, Judith Sloan from The Australian and Ginny Hewitt from The Financial Review. Let's turn to Australia-China relations. Judith, how can we warm up relations uh, given Beijing's illegal conduct in the South China Sea, uh, its hostility towards Hong Kong this year, uh, the brutal treatment of the ethnic Muslims in the Zhangjiang uh, province, China's unfair trade practices, all of that. How do we reach some sort of accommodation with Beijing? Look, I think it's incredibly difficult and I was just uh, listening to Neil Ferguson recently who, interestingly enough, singled out Australia as being the country which really was first to build the cat in terms of the sort of covert influence of the Chinese, particularly in our universities. It's, it's an acknowledgement that has now spread to the United States. I mean, Ferguson is kind of calling out Cold War II 
which has a technology element to it. Um, now, the trouble for Australia, of course, is that China is our largest trading partner by a long way, by the way. And in a sense, we, I think, face a very invidious challenge of at the one level trying to smooth those trading relations as much as possible, while at the same time um, sticking up for our democratic rights and I think calling out the, I think, tyrannical and oppressive behaviour of the Chinese regime. I think it is very tricky. Okay, but just say the Paul Keatings and the Bob Cars and the Hugh Whites are right and that we're witnessing uh, the slow retreat of Uncle Sam from the region. Stephen, loosely, um, do we just accept being part of China's strategic sphere of influence? No, we work on the basis of defining what our national interests happen to be and making it very clear to all and sundry, not just uh, to China, what our value, value systems represent and that we're prepared to defend those, while at the same time emphasising that the trading relationship with China and many other countries is a mutually productive relationship that China gains uh, from our investment and so on and so forth, just as we gain. But I think the first part is to make certain that we're a very robust democracy and be prepared to be assertive in, uh, in, in that respect. That can tend to minimise the friction once people understand what the uh, issues that are redline uh, issues happen to uh, to be. Now, I expect with the US and to a lesser extent with Europe during the course of 2020, we'll see people being more assertive about democratic uh, values. For example, there's a classic atrocity in Berlin just recently where a man is murdered from memory in the Tiergarten and the Germans concluded, their security services concluded, that this was a Russian wet operation and they expelled two uh, Russians as a consequence. Given all that Germany uh, has in the basket with Russia in, in terms of energy and so on and so forth, that was an assertive position taken by Berlin. And I think that's the kind of signal that we need to send from time to time. There are some things that we simply will not tolerate. A bad year for the relationship between China and Australia. Jenny Hewitt. Well, I think it has been um, a bad year uh, and it is, uh, as Judith said, uh, much more difficult, much more difficult than it was even five years ago, in part due to the increasing influence but also the approach of China um, in many ways. But I don't think it helps um, that when you have uh, backbenchers like Andrew Hastie, you know, speaking out very loudly in terms of ramping up the general level of concern um, in the community and also, you know, obviously getting the uh, deeply offending the Chinese. I, I think Morrison's speeches have been on the whole both firm in welcoming China's economic growth while also upstanding or standing up for Australian values and, uh, you know, as, as Stephen said, being fairly assertive on that. I think now at this tone where Australia is risks a little bit being so assertive um, and, and so aggressive and shrill in, in many of our statements um, that I'm not quite sure what we're trying to uh, achieve with that. And at the same time, um, it is correct, as Stephen says, that there is a mutually beneficial relationship. So I think we also have to emphasise that. Um, and the other issue, of course, is you've got a million plus um, Australians of Chinese heritage now mm. in Australia and trying to deal uh, with that in a kind of sensitive way is also um, a very difficult line for the government 
to go down. Yes, it is a very difficult process uh, riding these two horses simultaneously, reconciling the trade relationship with uh, China and our security ties with the United States. That brings us to Trump. Many experts uh, say that Trump is the most vulnerable president seeking re-election since Jimmy Carter. What are your thoughts, Judith Sloan? Um, I'm not sure I would share that assessment. I think uh, for two reasons. Uh, the American economy seems to be extraordinarily robust. The company tax cuts, but probably more particularly the deregulation agenda, seems to have really released a lot of animal spirits in the, the American economy. The unemployment rate is at a 50-year low and it's very low for some of the minority groups. I, I think that he obviously is a sort of rather odd odd figure. Um, but the other thing that, and it's, I guess, a similar Some might picture. say that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are <laughs> yeah, well, right as well. That's right. That's so what I was going to say. Yeah. So if the Democrats throw up um, a candidate uh, that espouses uh, some extreme left-wing views, then I think Trump will win. Well, on that note, Stephen, I mean, the consensus among seasoned Washington experts is that the, the, the left-wing lurch of the Democrats actually will hurt them in an election against Trump. So why not embrace a centrist such as uh, the former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg? Because sometimes uh, political parties need at least two heavy defeats before they come to their senses, <laughs> and I think that's what's happening here, and I hope it's not happening with my a party here with the uh, the ALP. In terms of... Uh, We've already had three, though. Bernie Sanders, <laughs> exactly my point. My uh, my assessment is occupy the uh, the middle ground in the United States in, in large measure. You are not only viable, you are uh, competitive enough to win. Now, if you look at the people who are on offer in the Democratic uh, primaries, and I hope to be out in Iowa for the end of the, the primary, Joe Biden still beats Trump in critical states. Amy Klobuchar beats Trump in critical states in the Midwest. For example, Senator Klobuchar carried her home state, Minnesota, by 22 points. Hillary Clinton only won it by two. I mean, that's mm. the kind of difference that we're talking about. Now, yes, the idea of a, a Bloomberg-Klobuchar ticket is uh, is out there, but at the moment... But they've got to win the primaries. At the moment, in terms of the, the primaries, Pete Buttigieg is ahead out in Iowa. He is an absolutely charming individual. I've met him in Washington. He's personable. He's thoughtful. I cannot see him actually getting to the nomination unless he improves his standing amongst African Americans dramatically. And by the time he gets to South Carolina, that may be a huge obstacle. Well, Jenny, you're a former Washington correspondent twice, I think, in the 80s and the 90s. The Democrats are likely to impeach Trump before Christmas. Do you think that uh, Trump still remains the favourite next year? Uh, well, I do think he remains the favourite, um, despite all the, you know, the qualms about his uh, personal style, even amongst uh, Republican, uh, many Republican voters who are still, you know, intending to vote for him. I think that will very much depend on, on continued strong economic growth. But as uh, Judith and Stephen have said, the other, of course, huge failing is the, um, so far, the complete inability of the Democratic Party to offer up an alternative uh, that is attractive to the middle ground voters. But of course, this is much of a part of a broader problem, which is the polarisation of politics um, across mm. the West in general. And, and so the people who 
uh, joint parties um, on either side tend to be, you know, more extreme rather than, than centre. And therefore, they're the ones who are actually responsible for picking picking the candidates. And so to actually get to that centre ground um, of an election for the Democrats, you know, you've, you've had people saying, well, the only way we're going to really excite our base and to get people kind of come out to vote is to have a candidate like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for example. And so, and that's, and that was a similar process and thinking, you know, because of the impeachment process, which of course was so long resisted by Nancy Pelosi. So um, at the moment, un unless there's a sudden change either in the economy or the political direction of the Democrats, you'd have to say that for his many, many flaws, uh, Trump does seem more likely to be re-elected than not. This is Tom Switzer on RN and we're addressing the year in review with former Labor Senator Stephen Loosley, the Australian's Judith Sloan and the AFR's Jenny Hewitt. Okay, everybody, let's turn to the fun part of the program and try to be as brief as possible. The winners of 2019, Stephen Loosley. Well, I always agreed with Ronald Reagan that you can't argue with success. So I think Scott Morrison deserves the laurel there. Judith Sloan, winner of the year. Um, look, I agree, but uh, I think in world terms, what happened in Australia is probably not as important as the many, many important developments uh, overseas, including in the UK, but really the large amount of demonstrations and I think a complete collapse in trust of politicians. I think, you know, we might be able to talk about this at the end of next year because I think that does have ramifications. But uh, ScoMo uh, back here, I think. Okay. So ScoMo's got two. Jenny Hewitt, your winner of the year. Well, I'm afraid, uh, you know, all politics is local, as uh, as we all like to say. And <laughs> from that point of view, in Australia, you know, you cannot go past um, the man who no one, or not, not no one, he hoped to be um, Prime Minister, but very, very few expected him to be. And the fact that he did pull off uh, an election victory against uh, against the odds, I think, means he's the clear winner. A reminder that low expectations are a priceless political asset. Let's turn to the losers of 2019. Stephen Loosley. I come back to uh, something that uh, Judith just al alluded to. I, I think trust in democratic societies is the great loser in terms mm -hmm. of our institutions, including the major parties, the churches, right across the board. There have been so many failures of leadership and so much corrosion in our institutions uh, that uh, trust is probably the biggest loser of 2019. And does that make you just quickly pessimistic about the future of democracy? No, look, I, I, Tom, I've been a member of the ALP for some 47 years. I have to be an optimist. <laughs> There's no way around that. Uh, so <laughs> I maintain my optimism about the... Uh, the future and ride out the present. You feel like me? I'm a South Sydney supporter and we've only won one premiership in my lifetime, but we won't start. Judith Sloan, your loser for 2019. Well, just sticking to the local and the specific, you have to put uh, Short and Plibersek, Bowen in particular, as the leadership group who I think, uh, as my mother would say, they they let it get ahead of themselves <laughs> and never a good idea. Sticking with the theme, all politics is local. Jenny Hewitt, your loser. Well, again, it is part. It's very hard to go past um, a man who who spent um, 
the Saturday afternoon uh, thinking he was going to be Prime Minister and by, you know, a few hours later his future was extremely bleak, Bill Shorten. But on a more, in a more general sense, can I just put a flag up for not a failure not just of 2019 but, in fact, for many, many years, and that is um, Australia's whole education policy and mm. the fact that we, mm, you know, like point. to boast uh, about how, you know, what a strong education name, um, nation we are and, you know, we've got these fabulous education services. And, you know, yet again we have more results showing that not only we're we going backwards relative to other countries, we're going backwards relative to where we were 10 years ago. Can we take solace, though, Jenny, that our national media, you know, the Australian, the Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC, they covered those international tests just recently. It was widely reported. But when I look at the Washington Post or the New York Times or the London Telegraph or the Guardian in Britain, they hardly covered them. And yet the school results there are no better. Why? Well, I think because I um, can't really explain the um, this why that was didn't get more coverage in the UK, other than the fact, obviously, that all they just all they think about there is um, uh, Brexit, and all they think about in the US is is Trump. In Australia, however, I think you'd have to look at it's a very it's a national issue, and it's a, a massive thing for a middle income, oh sorry, a middle power like Australia to have a failing education system it yeah. is absolutely a national disaster. Or could you argue, Stephen, loosely, that the reason why we give more attention to the the education issue than, say, Britain and America because they have much bigger problems to worry about. <laughs> I think it, it, it's it's probably a factor of our external focus that we've had for at least a, a couple of uh, generations. The, the knowledge, I think, is fairly widespread in this country that we compete internationally. To do well, we have to be able to compete effectively and education is a cornerstone of that. And we like comparing ourselves. Now, you can you have a situation, I was in Argentina just recently, where they compare themselves remorselessly with us and give themselves an F all the time. Because in 1900, they were the richest country in the world, we were the second richest. We have a circumstance where we compare ourselves with other OECD countries and the like, education's an important part of that, and I think that's a part of our external focus. Finally, predictions for 2020, uh, Judith Sloan. Well, I think, uh, and this is, I think, less flattering to Scott Morrison, in a sense, I don't think the sort of uh, rationale of we escaped a bullet by not voting Labor in is really a sufficient basis for governing. So I think, you know, they have to put their skates on. I think the economy is clearly pretty soft. And so they, I think, have to devise systematically a coherent strategy and a series of planks to implement because I think... Look, you'd still put their money on them being re-elected, but anything can happen in politics. And I think good governing is, I think Paul Keating said, good governing, good policy is always good politics. Yeah, it seems like the only predictability about politics these days is its unpredictability. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> Jenny Hewitt. Yes, well, that's right. Anything can um, happen in politics. So you're a very brave person to uh, predict anything uh, <laughs> about the next year. Uh, I actually agree with Judith's assessment on the Morrison government needing to kind of step up more than it, than it has, having now won the election that nobody expected it to win. But in broader um, international terms, I think the tensions between uh, China and the US are only going to get worse on all sorts of issues. And I think that um, is going to make life even more difficult for uh, Australia. Yeah, that's disturbing. Stephen Loosely, finally, your prediction for 2020. Uh, the United States presidential election will be the toughest and hardest fought since 1800. Wow, what a call. <laughs> watch. Just watch. If Donald Trump believes that he's going to lose the election, there will be absolutely no restraint. 
which will mean that the Democrats respond in kind. I think this is going to be a very tough uh, election campaign up to and including the conventions and beyond. This almost sounds like civil war stuff. No, not civil war, but in terms of their ballot box being the clearinghouse for democracy, this will be a very, very tough campaign. Worst of the 1968 to be continued. Stephen, <laughs> Judith, Jenny, a lively and informative discussion on our end today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. Jenny Hewitt from the AFR, Judith Sloan from The Australian and Stephen Loosely from the US Studies Centre. Well, that's it for the show this week and for this year. To hear today's 2019 review panel again or any of our other past episodes of Between the Lines, just download the ABC Listen app or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or you just go to the program page at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts. Now, next week, we begin our season of the best of 2019. Make sure you tune in then. I'm Tom Switzer. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And to finish, let's hear from one of my favourite Christmas tunes. It's Red Fox from Sanford and Son in the early 1970s. So I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from 1 to 92. Although it's been said many times many ways Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Merry Christmas to you You've been listening to an ABC podcast Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.